So DeAndrea, that reminded me, your, your metaphor, reminded me of the story of the two fish that were swimming in the ocean, and three, another fish, a third fish comes along and says, hey, beautiful day we're having here, beautiful ocean we're having. And one of them said, yeah, and then the other one looked as that one went off, the other one looked at the first one and said, what's the ocean? Right? That's what I want to think about today. When we think about temptation, oftentimes we're tempted to think it's about something else when really it's all it's about is simply claiming our most authentic self. But even the scriptures falls prey to its own sense of dualities. I mean, the Old Testament scripture had more mystery and non-duality in it and, and sort of everything all interconnected and all mysterious and God was here and God was there and God was everything and everywhere. And at the same time, the minute you thought it was God, then you probably were wrong. It's not the storm, it's not the wind, it's not the, this and that. It was the quiet voice. Or it was the eagle, or it was a rock. Or it was manna. God was all sorts of things. Then by the New Testament, and by the time of the uh, Gospels, after Jesus had been gone now for what, almost uh, 30 years, 20 years to 70 years, depending on which Gospel you're reading, things already started to take concrete form. And that's what we have here. Yeah, Mark's gospel, which is the first gospel. And if you notice, Mark's story just simply says after Jesus was baptized, he's led up into the wilderness and he's tempted or he's tested. And then um, after, after a while, he's, uh, he, I guess he succeeds at the tests and he's then ministered by angels and he's hanging out with the animals and he comes down into the village and he says, now the time is here. Now the kingdom of heaven is here at hand. Now you go to Mark's, I mean Matthew's gospel, and Matthew was written for a Jewish community specifically, a specifically sort of higher ritualized, a higher church, if you will, form of Judaism. And so Matthew's gospel has Jesus with the formulaic three temptations. If you're hungry, turn these stones. You're son of God, turn the stones into bread. Jesus says, man shall, or people shall not live by, the, by uh, bread, but by, by bread alone, but by the words that come out of the mouth of God. Interesting phrase since there were only so many written words. So where was the mouth of God? Where were those words? That's an interesting thing to think about. Second thing, though, was then, okay, so go up on the high, the, Satan takes him to the highest temple in the temple city. So we know that's Jerusalem, but what do we also know? Well, the temple's already fallen. Rome's already sacked Jerusalem. It's after 70 AD, so the temple's falling. So now why would we have this ritual phrase, go to the temple, stand on the top, and then jump from it and call God's angels to come save you. And then Jesus says, you shall not tempt the Lord. And then the third one, formulaic part of that, of that story is, then um, all of this that you see in front of you, you could have. Power, fame, all that. You could be in control of everything. And then Jesus says, you just, we live just to worship God. That's why we're here, to worship God. Worship's an interesting phase, right? Dualistically, traditionally, we think of it as one thing. What does it mean non-dually? What does worship mean, right? When you look up the root word of worship, it means to give worth. What? To give worth to something. If God's the very ground of our being, what are the temptations inviting us into, in fact? That's what I want to suggest. So this first thing here, if we bring up the first... Oh, and I'm calling this Exhibit 1 because I'm going to be talking about temptation for a couple of Sundays here. I think it's a fun topic. You know, we often think of, we often think of, I'm just, any of you ever been tempted and regretted something? Right? 
Do you still carry the regret around? You don't have to nod your head. Don't do it. I don't want to know that about you. So, <laughs> um, but, you know, do you, you know, do you still carry around that regret? I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't made that choice. I was tempted and I made that choice, et cetera, et cetera. Again, that's seeing this the wrong way, but that's how we've been taught to see things over time. That's just how we've been taught. And the traditions of the church has been even more in company with this dualistic way of seeing things because the church is oriented around certainty and certain answers. Historically has been. And it's always been around power. So it's going to give you this sense in which you sort of carry this grief or this shame or this guilt or this regret. Because we see things, bad choices, good choices, the evil wolf, the good wolf inside us. That kind of thing. But it's all wrong. Well, I could, I could be wrong, but I think it's all wrong. I think it's seeing things in this certain non-dualistic way. This is what um, John Dominique Croissant, one of my favorite authors, still around 90-something years old, I think he is, and uh, Irish, wonderful Northern Irish man who, um, let's see if I can find my quote here so I don't have to look up there and read it. Where is it? There it is. So one of the things that he was part of the Jesus seminar, part of looking at the historical Jesus, that thing that took place in the late 80s, early 90s, into the 2000s, that I, sort of trying to find what was essential to Jesus and what was tradition, what was community, what was redaction and embellishment, etc., etc. And then over the centuries, what's changed? He says, my point once again is not that those ancient people told literal stories and we are now smart enough to take them symbolically. And that's important, the way he's saying this. He's kind of coming at it from the back door. But that they told them symbolically, and now we're dumb enough to take them literally. You get that? The stories were never meant to be taken literally. Their profoundness, their profundity is in their ability to transcend our need to nail them down. So that it can speak to us in fresh new ways, like a good poem like a good sunset, like, a, like finally mowing the, the yard and deciding, wow, I never knew it was so much fun. Now it becomes my meditative practice. My son comes over and says, would you like me to mow the lawn, Dad? I mean, it's kind of hot. I was like, stay away from my church. That's where I go to be present, <laughs> to mow the lawn now. Didn't used to be that way because I always saw it one way. Well, that's what, that's what Dominique, Don, John Dominique Croissant is saying. These stories are not meant to be taken literally. They're meant to be taken in a metaphorical, parabolic way. And so I want to see them as a parable and, and, then, and then invite ourselves to see things less concretely. Now, that's a big leap for most all of us. I had one of these quotes here because I loved it. We're going to skip James Baldwin's. Well, no, let's do James Baldwin's quote just because it's such a beautiful quote. James Baldwin wrote this. He said, any real, and you know who James Baldwin was, right? African-American poet and, and a brilliant man and civil rights activist. And he said this, you can understand in the context of who he was, any real change implies the breakup of the world as one has always known it. The loss of all that gave one an identity, the end of safety. Well, in our own time, all these years later, we can see where that's coming to life, where that's been coming to life over the last decade or two is this fear of change and this anxiety with things not being certain and now we've got AI and everybody's all crazy and, and sort of coming up with all their different narratives about what AI can do because we've seen the movies and so we're anxious right we just get anxious and we want to control the temptation is you can overpower this so let's do that. Let's overpower it. Let's control it. Because I'm scared. 
Here's what Soren Kierkegaard said. Soren Kierkegaard said he was a 19th century theologian, Danish theologian, first existential philosopher, really. The, I love this phrase. The greatest hazard of all is losing one's self. It can occur very quickly in the world as if nothing had happened at all. No other loss can occur so quietly. Any other loss, an arm, a leg, $5, a wife, or a spouse, or a husband, or a partner, whatever, that's sure to be noticed. But losing oneself can happen very quietly. In fact, a lot of us never actually even find ourselves, right? That's the challenge. That's really what I think this story is in the beginning of Jesus' ministry as a story, as a parable. It's inviting Jesus into sort of acknowledging not only who he is, but the whole purpose of reflecting who we all are and helping us all see that, all those who are around him then. But it's easy to get lost because we, we live in a world that is trying to constantly direct us. And it's nobody's fault. We'd love to blame society. We'd love to blame the internet. We'd love to blame this, but it's all us, right? You know, we'd love to blame the Republicans, but it's us. I'm sorry. Have you been in a bad relationship before? It's not them. It's us. Have you been addicted? It's not the drug. It's us. We're, the, we're all a part of this reality. But we tend to see it as either or, they or us, them or us. And we miss the real potential for change because we keep playing the same zero-sum kind of game. And the invitation in here is not to see it as power over, but to see it as power with. A phrase I'd like for you to remember, because we'll talk about it in, in the future too. This story is really about the difference between power over something and power with something. Things that are inviting us to feel our own connection and to make whatever that moment is more alive, more whole, more complete, more redemptive. That's the invitation. That's everything that Jesus is being tested about is that recognition that he's a part of everything, that everything's a part of him and all of us are as well. So. It reminded me of this thing. I was on this trail ride this week as I was thinking about this temptation, whole idea about temptation, and what it means to lose oneself and what it means to find oneself. I loved that Sharon was talking about Mary Oliver last week because Mary Oliver, she had that one beautiful point where she kind of questioned her whole self, right? She was like questioning her whole purpose and everything and what was this all about? And then what did she do? She went outside and just was present to everything. That wonderful phrase, that little poem that we've, we've used it many times in here, instructions for life. Pay attention, which is not just like notice, but give attention to. Pay attention, be astonished. And then the real one, the important one, tell about it. Because it's in our shared stories, our vulnerability has the chance to open up. And we go, oh wait, that's, that's, that's God in there. <laughs> This is God in here. This is, we're discovering this God moment. And you realize, well, wait, wait, wait. They're all God moments. So I told that story at a school the way I've told it. The, the, the fox of the crane. Cautionary tale, the way the Russians ended it, the way that most of Aesop's fables often end. The way most of our stories end, someone gets it, someone makes it. Right? Someone makes a bad decision, someone makes a good decision. 
And that's the way life is. That's the way we teach everyone to be that way. I told that story, and then afterward, a woman came up to me at one of the schools, and she said, I don't know why, but that story made me think of my addiction. I said, wow, I see why. Because I mentioned that phrase, living in denial. I used that in the elementary school. Elementary kids have no idea what that means. <laughs> but the teachers are all sitting there understanding all the denial that goes into being in an educational system at the, at the whim of the system, while at the same time living their own lives, while at the same time trying to make sense of all of it, and teach. It's easy to fall into denial. So we talked. So yeah, I grew up with addiction. Grew up with an alcoholic family. Had a son who was addicted to meth for a while. Oh, no, that can't be. What's your background? I said, well, I was a minister. You're a man of God? I said, don't go there. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I'd say, I'm a minister. Don't know about man of God kind of thing. Don't put any labels. I said, but, you know, I just, I think, I, I, I believe in the connectedness, and in the interconnectedness. She said, this is a real God moment. Right? No, they're all God moments. They're all God moments. The temptation is to try to control it so that we don't see that it's always been a God moment. That's our most authentic, true self. This next image here that I threw up here, I threw up because, did we put that one up there? Oh, no, skip that one. We're going to talk to him next week. So I was riding on the bike trail in Michigan. It's a 30-mile trail. It goes along the bay. You don't see much of the bay for half of it because it's all wooded, but you can see the water just behind there. See that little golden dot there? Uh, that's the sun, right? The sun's kind of setting off in the distance, coming through, and I saw that bent tree. And, f and I passed right by it, and I thought, that's a question mark. It's a Spanish question mark, but it's a question mark. And the fact that it's upside down, you know what Rumi said? Rumi said that what love wants to do is love wants to turn you upside down and shake all the nonsense out. So I turned back around, I rode back, and I took a picture of it because then I noticed it had the welcome candle on it. <laughs> and then I thought of Rumi's famous phrase, the, the answer is in the question itself. The challenges we face, the obstacles we face, the answer is always there. It's just we're looking for something else to overpower, to control, to get what we want, to feel like we're loved, to feel like we're special. We're surrounded by that kind of imagery all the time. I, I just get, I don't know if you get caught with Instagram. I get caught in Instagram. I have 50, at least 50 or so people I follow. That's nothing. I know some of you have hundreds of people you probably follow. Well, at least a few of you maybe on Instagram. But you just get caught in this and you're wondering these people, how do they do that kind of athleticism? How do they do that? Look at that beautiful person there. Look at that amazingly handsome person. You see all of these beautiful, wonderful images and occasionally some fun stuff and you can't help but start to think, I wish I had that. I wish that were me. I wonder, I, all these people get out there and put stuff out there. I, I don't, I, you know, I wish I had something out there. I mean, we live in this world that is constantly tempting. But here's the thing. Temptation is not bad. That's where we get it wrong. Look up the word temptation. Look up its etymology. Because you know me, I love words. Word study. The root word to etymology does not mean don't do this bad thing. It means to see. Temptation means to see, to try and pull something out. Later on, it became used in the context of the church. and the context Because church has kidnapped a lot of good words. 
over the years and turned them into bad words. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just what we do because we're all about power and control. That's our, that's our mask. That's not our true nature. That's our masked nature. Just try it in any relationship and see how well it works. It doesn't. The only relationship the way that, that works is when we are open and attentive and then get astonished. That's when we start to really feel the blessing and the excitement and the wonder of our relationships. So the answer is actually there in the question. So later on, um, that's what, and I think that's what this story is about, by the way. I think this story is all about inviting Jesus, inviting us by way of the parable, any readers, listeners, to unmask the situation to see it less about either or, and to see more of what's possible. Now, back then, we had a very dualistic understanding. Many people still do now with their religion. Religion is very much about denial. It's very much about covering up. It's very much about kind of not really being, you know, looking for certainty. But again, if it's looking for certainty, what are you looking for? Control. If you're looking for control, what's the problem? That's the wrong way to do things. So the minute you start looking for control and using religion for that, you've missed the beauty of the depth of life. That only comes with vulnerability. Well, Jesus used the language of God as other than because they had a very, a very concrete, three-tiered way of understanding the universe, right? Cosmos was just three layers, basically. So it's pretty simplistic understanding. We know much more than that. We have quantum physics now, quantum entanglement. We know there's all sorts of mystery and wonder and unpredictability in life. But we do know the more we pay attention to our moments in really attentive, vulnerable ways we experience something amazing. So after about 10 more miles on the bike, I turned around and I went back. And when I got to the clearing, I saw that. And there were people standing up on the hill behind me and I put my bike to the side and I walked up the hill because they were all just standing and staring at it. And this is not Photoshop, this is the way it looked. Because the fires from Canada had created a filter that was there for three weeks, two and a half weeks that I was there. It was just this, you couldn't see the blue that clearly. All you could see was the letter I. And it just suddenly hit me like, oh, wow. Remember that phrase that when, when uh, Moses tries to say, who should I tell people that you are, God? And God says, I am. I am whatever I am. There's something about paying attention that once we do, and we really do it, Practice, I always talk about our practice, the more we pay attention to all of our moments, even the simplest ones, the more we start discovering, oh wait, it's all part of this. It's all, we're all part of this. I find my story more in you than I do in me if I'm listening well enough. And hopefully you'll find more of your story as we listen. That's, that's because that's the way we're all made. We're made to be in connection. The temptation is to do just the opposite, to control and overpower. So I want to invite the band to come on up here because I'm going to wrap things up here, move through this a little bit faster. What's the next one? Next slide. Yeah, y'all saw the moon this last week? I was just driving around in my corner. I pulled up to the corner of my street. I looked over the house. There was the moon coming up between the trees. I remembered hearing this past week someone say, one of the ways to experience delight is to never forget to look up. Walking through the woods, walking down the street, walking outside, always look up. We're missing a whole lot of reality 
that we're a part of. And sometimes when we see the moon, we forget, in fact, that we're just astronauts, all of us. We're all astronauts. We don't think that, but we are. We're all astronauts on a rock, and we're all spinning through the cosmos. And we get in our little petty games, right, and get all caught up in what we can control. But that's not where the delight is. The delight is in letting go of it all. The delight is in the non-judgment when you start to find yourself even gossiping or even joining in. When we learn to ask ourselves, why do I do that? Is there something I'm uncomfortable with? Is there something I don't like about myself, maybe? What would it be to delight in other people's delight, right? And start finding out how delightful that is. So I just thought I'd share this next one with you. A priest, a rabbit, and a minister walk into a bar. The bartender asks the rabbit, what do you have? The rabbit says, I don't know. I'm only here because of autocorrect. I just thought we needed to laugh at this point. And sometimes that's exactly why we're here, just because of autocorrect. <laughs> it's just an accident. But that was what, um, I believe it was one Meister Eckhart, it was, um, I'm going to forget the guy's name, philosopher's, German philosopher's name, it's just completely escaped me. But one of the things that he had said was, he said that life is all about accidentally discovering the sacred moments. So the practice is to become more accident. Oh, it's Krishnamurti. That's what it was. It wasn't German. Krishnamurti. He said, the practice is now to learn how to become more accident prone. That's really what the practice is. So here's my final quote as we get ready for this last song. We're going to be talking a little bit about what it means to have a cosmic perspective. Because the temptation is to have power over things. My professor at, at, at pastoral counseling at Bright Divinity School the one thing he told my wife and I when we were at the pastoral care center, we were doing interviews and, and uh, supervision, and he said, you know what's going on here? It's in every single counseling session, every single teacher session, every single relationship, even your relationship with life itself. It's a power struggle. Every one of them. It's always about power. But here's the thing. That's the temptation, Right? The real, tempt, the real thing about temptation is it's an invitation to see that and then to experience what it is to let go of that. Then we begin to experience the kingdom of heaven at hand. Here's how Barbara Taylor Brown, my favorite Episcopal priest, put it. What is saving my life now is the conviction... Wait a minute. We're going to jump right into this after I finish it, so let me put this on. I forgot my segue. Okay, I'm in tune. You know what? I gotta finish one more thing. I forgot to tell you. I didn't end the story of the fox and the crane that way. No, and if you can go, you can find my recording online, but if you go and you find the recording, I chose to end it differently. The bird's flying off and the hunter's taking the fox away, and the bird suddenly remembers its one thought. And it turns back around and flies straight towards the hunter who drops the fox, and the fox runs off, and the bird flies off. <laughs> yeah. And the bird said, a thousand thoughts is, a, is fine. It's fine. Have as many thoughts as you like. But even a hundred thousand thoughts is a waste of time if there's not always one good thought that is guiding your mind. Pay attention. Be astonished. Tell somebody about it. 
Barbara Taylor said at the end, what is saving my life now is becoming more fully human and trusting that there is no way to God apart from the real life in the real world.